is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast for episode 87 is Jungian analyst and author John Ryan Huell in Brookline, Massachusetts. He earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the University of Detroit and later went on to receive a doctorate in religious studies from Temple University in Philadelphia. Dr. Huell worked as an assistant professor of religion and culture at Northeastern University in Boston before training as a Jungian analyst at the original C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich. He has been practicing as a Jungian analyst in the Boston, Massachusetts area since 1980. He served as president of the New England Society of Jungian Analysts and the C.G. Jung Institute Boston, and as convener of the American Council of Jungian Analysts. He also spent several years on the executive committee of the International Association for Analytical Psychology, based in Zurich. Currently, he is a lecturer at the C.G. Jung Institute in Kusnacht and is an active member in their alumni association. Dr. Huell is the author of eight books, The Love Cure, Therapy, Erotic, and Sexual, Perils of the Soul, Ancient Wisdom and the New Age, which is the subject of episode 83, The Ecstasies of St. Francis, The Way of Lady Poverty, the subject of episode 82, Divine Madness, Archetypes of Romantic Love, Jung in the 21st Century, Volume 1, Evolution and Archetype, the subject of this episode, and Volume 2, Synchronicity and Science, which we will be covering in episode 88. And Tantra and Erotic Trance, Volume 1, Outer Work, which we will be giving away this week on Twitter, and Volume 2, Inner Work. His essay, Jung Comes Back to Himself, Reflections on the Connections Between the Red Book and Gnosticism, was published in Volume 4 of Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Searching for Soul Under Postmodern Conditions, edited by frequent speaking of Jung guest Murray Stein and the late Thomas Arst. Dr. Huell's professional work has focused on the generally overlooked spiritual and emotional dimensions of everyday life. In this episode, the third in a series, we will discuss the first volume of Jung in the 21st Century on Evolution and Archetype. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, May 19th, 2021, through the magic of Skype. Welcome back, Dr. Huell. I'm glad to be here. So today we're finally going to look at your two-volume series titled Jung in the 21st Century. It was published back in 2010 by Routledge, and it is, as I mentioned, in two volumes. The first volume is Evolution and Archetype, and the second volume, Synchronicity and Science. So I was hoping you would tell us a little bit about how this came to be. Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, the, uh, and actually, as I say in the preface to the book, it started out in a state of uh, fear on my part, fear that uh, Jung would be forgotten as we moved into the 21st century. And uh, as every everything in the realm of psychology seems to be in flux yeah. now, uh, for, for most of the uh, second half of uh, the 20th century, the, uh, yeah, the 20th century, Freud had, had uh, kept up with Jung and other dimensions of uh, psychology, but uh, it seemed to me that that uh, I was hearing less and less about Freud, uh, and uh, apparently he had was had a smaller and smaller position in the in the universities and so on as it used to be. And I thought, well, you know, if that can happen to Freud, it can certainly happen to Jung because most people think that Jung is not a, sci- a scientific thinker. Actually, he's much more of a scientific thinker than Freud. Um, and uh, what I wanted to do is, is to try to bring out the uh, relationship that Jung has, Jung's theories have to, uh, to scientific theories. 
and they're not as different as you might think. So that was the that was what I started out with with the idea that if if someone doesn't try to show how Jung is uh, up with the times, mm-hmm. uh, he w- he probably won't survive in the twenty first century. So that's that's why I tried to that's that's the reason for behind my writing Jung in the twenty first century, and um, and I thought what I could do is base it all base all of my work on number one my knowledge of Jung and number two my ability to read um, popular books written by scientists about what they're what's going on in their field and so while my scientific education did not continue uh, past about 1964 the fact is that uh, those people did teach me how to think like a scientist. And so that made it possible for me to read um, popular books written by biologists and physicists and chemists in uh, the modern day. It also means that all of the material in Jung in the 21st century is a little bit dated because people don't, don't write those books that I was reading as the fir- their first expression of of what they're they're doing in their science, mm-hmm. they they write the books after a number of things have come together, and they can make a, a popular presentation. And so that's what I was doing in in uh, Jung in the twenty first century, evolution and archetype in particular. One of the issues behind this is that uh, evolution is the foundation of biology. And, uh, and psychology is, uh, has had a, a tenuous relationship at best with, uh, with biology. And what I was finding in the literature by contemporary biologists is that they were beginning to think in neurology, how the brain works, uh, uh, all these kinds of things were beginning to be discussed in a much more uh, open way and in a a comprehensive way, which revealed to me, well, this guy's talking about complexes, for example, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or this other person uh, has worked out a relationship uh, of the um, relations between mother and child among primates with relations among mothers and child among humans. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that uh, humans have more, human infants have more series, uh, more steps to go through in their series of uh, becoming adapted to a world that is uh, thoroughly linguistic. And uh, the position of uh, different primates on that line shows that uh, as, as primates were evolving, they were moving in this direction that humans have assumed now. And so we can compare a baby at uh, three months with a, uh, with a primate at three months. And, and then at five months, maybe uh, this, the, um, pro- the process will have proceeded further. This tells us that, uh, that archetypes, the, the, uh, the structural forms of thought and reaction that Jung is talking about are real and they have the same relationship to us as evolution has. And I'm sure that that was, that was Jung's intention in coming up with the idea of archetypes, was to come up with something that was fundamental to being human or being an animal. Or even, you know, even, uh, of course, it applies also to plants. But uh, what I was finding in the literature, in other words, was a foundation. These people are not saying, oh, we've been reading Jung lately, and I can say this about it. No, I'm the guy who did the reading of Jung and the reading of the... uh, the books and papers that uh, that the professional biologists and and chemists and, and physicists have been uh, writing. The first volume, Evolution and Archetype, has more to do with biological science, and volume two has mostly to do with Jung and physical science. 
So in this first volume today, we're going to cover, I'd like to really delve into Jung's idea of the archetypes, what they are, and also evolution. And I heard you talk about evolutionary psychology. And that was what you what really got you thinking about all of this when you when you heard two evolutionary psychologists talk that that they came up with the idea that human beings must be like animals. And that's mm-hmm. when you began working on the idea for this volume. So the ideas that Jung came up with 100 years ago, right? Because mm-hmm. Jung was writing in the 20th century, and here we are in the 21st century. And, and most of his theories began um, back there at the beginnings of the, Jung was born in, in uh, 1875, so he was 25 years old when the 20th century began. And so he, he, he very careful to, when he formulated his theories mm-hmm. not to violate what was known by biology or other sciences at the time that he was writing. So that that's this is what I discovered, and and the the reward for that, and you might say, for Jung was that in the years since he died, he died in 1961. Mm-hmm. Um, in the years since he died, biology, particularly and to some extent chemistry, have um, discovered some of the things that he discovered intuitively a hundred years earlier. What do you attribute that to? I mean, Jung was a great thinker and a great had a great mind. And I I hesitate when when I say these things because I know the uh, criticisms that are that are uh, leveled at people who who say such things and deify Jung and put him on a pedestal. But um, he really belongs on one. So, what do you attribute it? that too, how he was indeed ahead of his time. Oh boy, I don't know, deemed ahead of his time, I'm not so sure. I Let me put this question okay. differently. I would like to say that uh, our culture, uh, the West, primarily Europe and, and, uh, and the United States, we might say, uh, has favored uh, a, a kind of thinking that is very rational and and very materialistic, mm-hmm. and uh, and Jung found that much too cramped. He he was very excited around the time that he uh, graduated from uh, the university with his medical degree to find that what was going on was an investigation of altered states of consciousness, showing that uh, revealing a whole different world for the psyche. And that was why he felt that he had needed to go into psychology because there was so much being discovered and and because uh, realities, uh, psychological realities for us humans are not exhausted by a methodology that is determined by logic and materialistic uh, connections. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, he began right from the beginning looking into these other uh, activities. People, he, what people would, in those days, people would be tra- uh, traveling around from city to city, showing off their psychic talents. And Jung was always interested in those things. He he went to uh, in the beginning of of his career. You know that he very explicitly studied those things. And but as time went on. Um, he just uh, quietly went to the demonstrations being put on, and sometimes with one of his colleagues. And uh, and sometimes he would even sign the register saying that, I, that he had seen it and he did not see any trickery involved in the, um, um, the, the talented uh, individual who was being investigated. Um, so, any, so that's kind of the background. And uh, by... Uh, it's important to know that by 1933, he uh, a great opportunity fell into his lap. One of his former patients, a Dutch woman, uh, had uh, bought a 
uh, piece of of, of land in uh, the uh, Italian-speaking part of Switzerland and wanted to get together with Jung and other scientists of his kind of thinking and and make presentations, um, gather these people together and have have them make discuss their their latest work, work that perhaps is not ready yet for publication, but to sharing these things among themselves. And the difficulty, this was called the Eranos meetings, conferences, uh, going, starting in 1933, pausing a little bit in the late 80s, and then resuming. They're still going, as far as I know, they're still going on. Yes, they are. And uh, the important thing for the whole for the whole thing was, can we find a way to bring the respectable way of thinking and all of these other things that go on in the psyche. Can we can we find a way to talk about these things in the same environment? Uh, because the the problem is if you if you start talking about about the phenomena that are unusual, immediately you're not uh, being uh, you the other people. The, uh, the 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 people who are thinking the right way uh, reject that uh, position. So they were these people were being brought together to to share their views at the boundary line between uh, objective what's what they call objective science and these uh, new scientific investigations. And so so I think that was that was central to Jung throughout his career that he was trying to understand what the domain of psyche, of psyche contained and how can we come to understand it and how can we have a develop a system um, to uh, evaluate these kinds of things and of course one of the most important uh, manifestations of this way of thinking was his theory of synchronicity which we will discuss uh, in two weeks. What I wanted to say there, and I probably used too many words, uh, but, but what I wanted to say was, that's what I felt like I needed to do. Uh, in a, write something that would show the world that if they want to understand uh, the psychological um, dim- psychological dimensions of uh, of our sciences, they would do well to uh, look into Jung, and they would do well to... and. I, I would say about my book, it's not the last word. It's at best the first word. My idea was I'm not an expert in any of these areas that I'm talking about and showing how they agree with uh, Jung. Uh, I, I, I have a bachelor's degree only. Um, it allows me to read that stuff and understand it. And But the, the important thing is that um, real work, I'm... I've, I finished the book with the idea that real work can begin if people who are really trained in uh, deeply in biology and chemistry and so forth get together and start investigating things, giving giving the uh, uh, the position to Jung of uh, of having guided them into thinking about their science in new ways. Mm-hmm. You say you have a bachelor's degree only. You mean in science. You have a bachelor's in chemistry, but you have a master's degree and a PhD in religious studies, and you have a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the equivalent to a PhD. So you're talking about uh, from a scientific standpoint. But this is a wonderful book, and I will be using it as a textbook. Yes, it is a little outdated, but it gives the history and the background, which is very important. And I wanted to point out how the book is broken up into three parts. The first part is evolution, archetype, and behavior. The second part is Jung's psyche and its neural substrate. And the third part is so interesting. It is the history of consciousness. And the topic of consciousness is very big right now. What is consciousness? In fact, there's a conference coming up next month uh, with the Perry Center on that. And you cover it wonderfully, actually, in part three. 
uh, Jung on the history of consciousness is chapter 15. Chapter 16 is the actual history of consciousness. And then you go through the different eras. And uh, I love it how in chapter 19, you have a photo of Gobekli Tepe, which is a hot topic right now. And this book, as I said, was published in 2010. So let's start at the beginning. Um, originally, when I had invited you to do this episode, it was because of my ongoing frustration with the topic of archetypes. Very similar to my frustration with the topic of synchronicity, I see that word used a lot and listeners of this podcast are probably tired of hearing me talk about how frustrated I am at how that word is misused a lot, but I'm seeing that now with the word archetype as well. So let's jump in and dissect that right now. All right. What I'd like to say first is there is a uh, a chapter or part of a chapter in the beginning of that volume, volume one, mm -hmm. in which I talk about all the different ways that Jung uses the word synchronicity or uh, archetype. Yes, it's chapter three. And, uh, mm -hmm. They vary very, uh, quite widely uh, among themselves. And I know that there are Jungian analysts who choose one of one aspect of, uh, or, or one definition of, of archetype uh, and favor it entirely. And I try, what I've tried to do is um, find the, the, the core of the um, various meanings that archetype might have. And uh, what I, I, let me just for a moment try to tell you what the, I think that is. Okay. Um, the, the thing that archetype can be most easily and uh, valuably connected to is instinct. You might even say, and I do say frequently, that uh, archetype is the eyes and ears and nose of incivit instinct. And, and so um, Jung's favorite example of what a, uh, an archetype would be is the he uses the yucca moth, and I did. By the way, once he he I heard that from Jung, I began to notice that around the uh, Jung Institute in Zurich, there are uh, lots of wild uh, yucca tr um, weeds growing, and so there must be yucca moths as well. In any event, the yucca moth uh, spends a, a very long time doing nothing but eating and is a caterpillar. And but when the when it goes into the cocoon and comes out, it's a, uh, a winged being. And so suddenly it's a winged being. It has known nothing about sex. It has uh, in all of its life. It has known only eating. Now it's not eating anymore. And sex is the only thing. And it doesn't realize that until it flies close enough to a yucca tr plant that's in bloom. And then uh, a very elaborate way of, of um, preparing for the next generation goes on in the, uh, in the moth's life. And, and Jung said the reason that he chose the yucca moth is because it was so complicated and it only performed this uh a reproductive act once in its whole history. It, it performs the, the act and dies. And so, and there was no, there's no time for the yucca moth to have learned it. And so what he, what happens when the, uh, the yucca moth gets near to what you might call the, the image of the archetype, the, the, the blue blooming plant, um, you see what happens. The ar the archetype goes into operation. It's already a uh, a plan of action for the yucca moth, and has and has succeeded for a very long time. And so we can depend on the instinct archetype of the uh, of the yucca moth to pr produce more for the future. And it's like it's similar for us if you think about. Um, Reaching the age of of um, uh, sexual maturity, uh, adolescence rather, um, you know that uh, 
suddenly you go into a, a realm of of confusion and uh, where nothing makes sense anymore. You have to you have to rethink everything. This ent- this air archetype has entered your life and it affects a million different things and your ability to try to make all this stuff uh, make sense together. It takes a good long time. So we could imagine that when we encounter our, uh, when we encounter in our adolescence, the uh, archetype of sexuality, it's a little bit like the yucca moth who um, is never driven to anything but eating until it be- becomes a winged being and uh, and falls under the influence of the, uh, the sight and smell of the yucca plant blossom. It is, you say, his favorite example of what an archetype is. And what do you think it was from him um, observing it there in Zurich and Kusnacht? No, I I, uh, I don't think he had to see the the actual behavior of the the moths in the in the vicinity of his home. Um, maybe he did. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I just uh, found it interesting that you mentioned that you that there are yucca plants in Kusnacht because when I was uh, doing a little bit of research after after reading your book, I found out that. Um, they're linked with the Joshua tree and Joshua tree, uh, California, w- w- that houses lots of Joshua trees is a frequent uh, subject on this podcast. And so I was reading about the Joshua tree and uh, it's, it's a reputation for otherworldliness. And the yucca moth is actually, uh, this is from an article in the Smithsonian Magazine, which I'll provide a link to in the show notes. It says, is an equally extraterrestrial match for the iconic Joshua tree. So I just found that uh, quite interesting and possibly a little bit synchronistic, which we'll get into later. So what was the connection between the, the moth and the Joshua tree? That the yucca moths uh, pollinate this Joshua tree. Oh, oh, I see. More to the life of the uh, yucca moth that I didn't know about, and I don't know whether Jung knew about it. There's also another article I found on joshuatreegenome.org about Joshua trees and yucca moths that I will link to as well. So I, I'd like to uh, reiterate what you said about there being many definitions, and I I can't find it right now, but you actually have a number in the book of how many definitions of archetype are in Jung's collected works. And it was a Mm -hmm. double digit number. So my question to you, Dr. Huell, is what is the fascination with archetypes? Every time I mention Jung to, if I'm talking to people, if people ask me what my podcast is about, or if I'm on social media, and they hear the name Jung, it seems like the first thing people associate with Jung is not synchronicity, but it's archetypes. And that's never been, as I've said before, it's never been my area of interest. Um, I know there is a branch of uh, Jung psychology called archetypal psychology. That was never a big interest of mine. But I, I still find it very curious, people's fascination with archetypes. And why are they fascinated? Yeah, uh, what, what, what is it? And there, there is, I've actually mentioned this too, there are quizzes that you can take online to find out what archetype you are. And I, oh, I just don't think that that's, that's using it. <laughs> I don't think that's We're, using it are, correctly. We are human beings and we have the whole complement of yeah. archetypes. yeah. We all have it all. That's what my analyst used to say. We yeah. all have it all. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I think that's important to know. So uh, another favorite quote of mine has to do with uh, uh, Jung saying that if you, uh, theoretically, you should, you could take the collective unconscious, and that would be the full collection of archetypes, uh, and, and peel, this is the human collective unconscious. So you peel it back layer by layer, like, like an onion. You would eventually get back to the, uh, uh, 
the archetype of a worm or even even a single cell, even a, uh, a single cell being a um, um, and so and so what he really implies there is that the universe is a place in which or at least the, the earth is in a, a place in which uh, everything is related to everything else. Everything is grown from from everything else that's that's here uh, alive on our planet. And uh, so the more the more refined we are or the more accomplished in different realms, the more more archetypes we will have. That is to say, the more there are, we are born with a sort of um, uh, heads up, you might say, or uh, in the realm of uh, how different uh, animals, how different plants react and so on, that we're related to, to them all. So one reason why archetypes are of value it's, is that uh, they, we share them all, mm-hmm. and uh, and we can come to understand one another uh, across species, for example, um, by paying attention to our archetypes. And uh, for the for Jung, in the first place, I think it the the reason for the fascination was that he would he would find that a patient uh, had a dream that had a certain numinosity to it about a certain character. In the and then it, it turns out that this this uh, dream character manifests himself again and again in different ways in the life of the individual, and so you could say that that uh, the arch- this archetype is a uh, it's it's the center of a of an instinct, but it's an instinct with with a peculiar set of eyes and ears and nose and so on that aligns itself with the the beings around it it is we're 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 born coming in with the app with the aptitude to do these things that for which we have archetypal um structures in our psyche you say the collective unconscious is the inherited psyche yeah and there was something else about um jung you you point out that Jung did not say we inherit images. No, no, he did not say that we inherit. Um, many uh, Jung people who think along the lines of Jung or think they do. So back to the image of the the story of the yucca moth. The yucca moth, the the archetypal image for the yucca moth is the flowering plant. And it, it, it immediately, it knows, in a sense, it knows what to do as soon as it encounters the plant. Okay. And uh, so, and so we can think that uh, many of the different um, archetypes that we might find in ourselves are going to be related to certain experiences that we've had. It is what it is our inherited foundation of wisdom, you might say, or the bit of, a possibility of developing wisdom in certain fields, each one, you might say, is governed by an archetype. The archetype is not the image, the image, but the image might be the thing that gets the archetype going okay. in my body and mind. And, uh, and so if you, if, you can, if you can recognize archetypes as fundamental forms and you're interpreting dreams, it makes a lot of sense to identify something that has that comes through with the power and the regularity of a particular image in a person's dreams and say, well, this is this is internal an internal figure of yours. This is this is an archetypal figure in your life that's playing a role that you haven't been paying attention to. You've been letting it slip by. I think it's time for you to get more acquainted with it. So now where does evolution come in? Let's talk about what was Jung's take? I think his take was as near to Darwin's as one could have during those uh, early years. You know, if we're speak if we're speaking of uh, the first say twenty five years of the twentieth century, um, biology hadn't come to uh, 
recognize a means by which uh, inheritance can be transferred from one generation to the next. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had to discover they had to discover the work of a uh, a monk who had been raising pea plants uh, many years before, and uh, and writing the uh, writing up his his results. And so they began to they realized what inheritance must be. Um, uh, reading Mendeleev, and uh, so only only around 1925 or 30 did uh, bi- modern biology uh, discover the the uh, item that they felt made sense of Darwin, and name namely the whole idea of inheritance of uh, what we now call genes, um, and so. Um, Jung's position there was not hard. His, he, he, but he realized, he surely realized that uh, these things, these people are on the right track. And so even if we need to find a, a better Mendeleev or a, be, a better Mendeleev type theory, um, we're on track now. By all, uh, inheritance, evolution is really the foundation of biology. And we have discovered in the years since Jung died, much more vividly and and in detail, all of that is true. Um, namely, that uh, what is true is that we are all related. That um, uh, that the best way to understand ourselves would be to understand, and in many re- respects, would be to understand how the archetypes that are play a big role in my life. Uh, affect other people and other animals and uh, and how they affect the world at large. And that archetypes are embedded in evolution. Yeah, yes, you could say that. Archetypes are manifest, I would say, in evolution as uh, as new um, as a new being comes in that hasn't been uh, hasn't been that, when the first uh, member of a new species, I guess I should put it that way, uh, comes into its own, um, it's using all the archetypes of its inheritors that it's inherited from, and uh, it has some new take on it. Probably cer- certain aspects are more refined now than they were before, so that this animal now is more adapted to his environment than uh, his ancestors were. And I mean, so this is really the this is the way the world works uh, by way of inheritance, by way of evolution. And um, and so if uh, psychology is going to have a, uh, a secure foundation, it needs to be in some way or other related to the the idea of uh, of um the of uh, the bio the evolutionary ideas of biology are fundamental to it. I know I'm jumping around here, but in the interest of time, I wanted to make sure I covered the main topics in this book. And the other one is myth. And you talk about how science separated itself from mythology and Jung's discovery of the need for myth and his own personal myth was huge. Jung realized that we we lost our myth. Yeah, let me just start there. That and and this is something that comes up in his studies of alchemy. He 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 pursued alchemy because the alchemists uh, several centuries earlier were working with a different um, they were working with a different idea about the world. Uh, they were not totally materialistic as our people are today. And it, what it, by the middle of the uh, 17th century, it had become clear that uh, those who were taking a more scientific approach um, and those who were taking a more um, religious or mythological approach uh, in their laboratories were not speaking to one another anymore. And uh, what this means is we we in the West split off uh, 
the 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 same two pair of uh, of um, intellectual um, approaches to the world that we that I talked about before. On the one hand is the is the rational and materialistic one, and on the other hand are the uh, maybe more esoteric uh, aspects of human life and so forth. So um, Jung mourned that uh, the breaking apart of the mythic dimension and the uh, um, physical physics on the one hand and uh, more the esoteric, more, more esoteric undertakings on the other hand um, and and felt that this this division in us is fundamental to the uh, uh, not only to the uh, 20th century but really to uh, the entire 2,000 years uh, that we have um, that we have been under the heading of Pisces in the um, in the, um, the, the uh, um, as the sky appears to us, as as we look at and see the, the uh, constellations of stars and so forth, um, we are under we are under the the uh, influence of Pisces, which has two fish swimming in different directions. And Jung thought that's really where we are. We're 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 stuck between the two fish, just. Uh, Every time we go try to go move forward, we have to choose one side or the other, and uh, so there's always an opposition going on, and we ne- we need to find some way of uniting this, of bringing it together. So I don't know. I think I lost track of the question that you asked. Yeah, but Jung realized that science had separated itself from mythology. And when he went to New Mexico and he visited with the Pueblo people and he heard them talk about the, the myth that they live with, that they believe that they are in charge of the rising and setting sun. And Jung realized that, that that was their myth, the myth that they lived by and that he needed a myth and that we all need a myth and that we all are living a myth whether we know it or not. And our task, maybe, is to discover what our personal myth is, would you say? Absolutely, yes. And uh, Jung, at the time he was um, meeting in the, with the Pueblos, uh, at that time, he said that he couldn't, nothing in our life as Westerners can compare with the dignity that is granted to these uh Pueblo Indians, uh, who uh, who had such a noble role to play in the world, enabling the sun to rise, and and Jung said that uh, he was still looking for his myth, and he hadn't found it yet, and uh, he was he's sort of jealous of the uh, of the Pueblo Indians for what they had had discovered. He discovered, by the way, he, he did discover his own uh, myth later on in uh, Africa, where he stood up uh, on a high point looking down over a valley in which hundreds and thousands of uh, animals were moving through on an annual migration. And he realized this is the way the world would be if it weren't for people with the kind of consciousness that a human being has, they would be, it would be uh, all animals like this moving on, being born, um, uh, raising uh, young, dying, and uh, passing on all in darkness. It's only we who have a world, that we with, we humans have a world, and and to know that is to know that you that we are uh, almost companions of God in making the world what it is. Our observation. That's, so that's our uh, yeah that's that's our myth that uh, that we belong to and are co-creators with with God in the world that we live in. What about the individual myth? 
uh, Jung said that we're all living um, our own myth, whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that each of us has a personal myth that we're living by and it would benefit us to know what that was? Yes uh, and no. Uh, okay. Uh, every, everyone doesn't have a, uh, um, a myth that he's living by because most people haven't thought about it. And no, most people haven't uh, even, it hasn't occurred to them that something, that something like that might be valuable. But I think it is true to say anybody who uh, discovers his own myth has, has discovered a foundation uh, for his life or her life. And, uh, and that, and it is sort of, it is the goal of Jung and of, uh, Jungian analysis in general to find that, that, uh, that myth. The, the importance of the, uh, the word myth is usually degraded amongst us where we think, you know, um, people talk about, uh, the the myth that has taken hold of someone and they uh, um, and what they mean is something that seems pathological. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we're looking for, what we need to find in order to have found our own myth, is we have to have found something that gives meaning to the whole. And uh, and I'd say that you need to work on it too. Um, one of the things that um, uh, I've noticed is that there are is that there's a, seems to be a tendency among born again Christians to feel that they've had they've found something if they've had it if it, something has occurred once in their life and they and it flooded them with a sense of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, what I always wonder is what happens next. It seems to me that if you have a profound encounter with uh, with meaning like that that as your life goes on, you will be able to add to the value of that initial insight. Uh, more and more things will, be, will belong to the realm of your myth. And uh, your having discovered them would, will give you things to work on in order to uh, understand yourself better. As you were talking, uh, I did find, jumping back to archetype, I did find the passage in your book, you say, although one reviewer found more than 30 different definitions of archetype in a single volume of Jung's collected works, it's volume nine, one, because volume nine is broken up into one and two. Um, There is at least, you say, one stable fact. The archetype is always some sort of structuring principle that lies outside of everyday consciousness. And when it emerges suddenly, exceeds all subjective expectations. Running into such an archaic reality, Jung said in 1911, is like encountering a 2,000-year-old Corinthian column on a modern street corner. The last thing we expect, yet disturbingly familiar. So as we start to wrap up here, I was wondering, actually, we do have a bit more to cover, but I was wondering if there was anything else about archetype, uh, because I I did find something else. Um, It just still bothers me that the word is used as much as it is. And I had mentioned to you when we were chatting beforehand that next week, my guest is Ralph Blumenthal. He was a writer for the New York Times for many, many years and was on the team that won the Pulitzer Prize uh, for their uh, reporting. He's written a biography on Dr. John Mack, who you and I have uh, talked about on one of our previous episodes together. And Anyway, Mr. Blumenthal was on CNN a couple days ago uh, talking about UFOs or what Jung called flying saucers. And he said that for years they were written off as psychological constructs, hallucinations, archetypes. And he said, now we know from the Navy pilots that they're real. And my question is, did Jung say that flying saucers were archetypes? And, And if so, does that imply that they are not real physical objects? No. Well, Jung uh, Jung did uh, talk about them. He he became very interested because uh, back in the nineteen fifties there was really a uh, 
quite a, a, an enthusiasm for UFOs, mm-hmm. and he felt that he needed to say something because he felt that that what, that enthusiasm meant something. And uh, what he did say is that uh, these the the two forms, most common forms of uh, UFOs, are um, circular, like a saucer, mm-hmm. or um, cigar shaped. And um, both of those images can be images of wholeness, particularly the circle, uh, because we find everywhere, if you, a person wants to uh, describe uh, something of importance, well, it'll always be explained in, in a, some sort of circular way. And uh, so Jung was not saying that the... Uh, the uh, UFOs are archetypes in the sense that uh, some uh, vehicle from another dimension uh, is an archetype. Rather, what Jung was saying is people are responding to the shape of the thing, and it's the shape of the thing that is an archetype. A circle is an image of wholeness, And, and our people today in this world do not have a sense of wholeness anywhere at all. And so it's possible, one possible meaning of uh, UFOs is that this is a spontaneous eruption of the uh, Western psyche uh, to the, to express what it's longing for, a sense of wholeness and the circularity of the shape of the uh, uh, UFO would be the foundation for that sense of, uh, of wholeness. So they would be, it's unconscious. None of these people have, uh, unless they've read Jung, would have any idea that this could be an image of their self. But what Jung meant by self is, it's, it's the self of a person is that person's wholeness. We can never be comprehended in a single uh, thought. It's always, our wholeness is always greater than we are. But to know that we have, but to know that we have a wholeness is important. And to know that uh, if we act harmoniously with our our uh, self, our wholeness, then we will more likely have success in life than if we don't. I'm glad that we're talking about this now because you are the one to break this down for us. So I just want to, as because we're talking about it, I would like to get more clarity on this. Jung was not saying that UFOs, because of the shape being archetypal, he was not saying, therefore, they're just in the imagination and they're not physically real. He was not saying that. Am I correct? No, he, was not, he was not saying that. No, he was, he was saying that this, is, this would be a, a dimension of what um, um, a UFO means to see it as symbolic of what we need. But he wasn't saying he wasn't saying. But the uh, the UFOs are nothing but fantasies. He wasn't saying that he he wouldn't go that far. He didn't he didn't know he he wouldn't make that statement because he didn't know what they were. Right, right. But what he was interested in is why people got so excited about them. Yes, and today a lot of the UFOs that are in. The mainstream media, uh, as you and I were talking before, I told you that on this past Sunday night on the CBS television show, 60 Minutes, they did feature a segment about our U.S. government taking the reality of UFOs, which they are now calling UAPs to kind of move away from the stigma of the term UFO, taking them seriously and uh, doing research on them. So the shape of what's being seen mostly today is they're calling it a tic-tac, because it's shaped like a tic-tac. And what was seen by Navy pilots is 
even colored uh, like a Tic Tac, the white and the texture of a Tic Tac. Um, so I don't know if that you was mean those little candies that come in a uh, that re- come out of a plastic container one at a time. Yes, I do. Is that a Tic Tac? Okay. Yes, that's a Tic Tac. So that is kind of a cigar shape. I mean, a cigar is longer and thinner, but it's an an oblong oval. Now, would that be, be uh, similar to the circle and the mandala archetypally, an image of wholeness? How is the tic-tac shape different? Uh, I, I don't know. I wouldn't. Uh, I don't know why uh, a tic-tac would be shaped like would, uh, the shape of a tic-tac would uh, um, portend wholeness. I, I don't understand that. A uh, circle makes more sense for me. Right. So these these UAPs. Why do they say, why, what do they say? Is this has the shape of a tic-tac? There has been footage released, leaked, not sure, from the gun cameras of United States Navy pilots, mm-hmm. uh, specifically uh, off the aircraft carrier, the USS Nimitz. Mr. Blumenthal, Ralph Blumenthal, who will be my guest next week, and Leslie Kane from the New York Times wrote a groundbreaking article in December of 2017 about this leaked gun camera footage. They're calling what is seen in the video, which I will provide a link to in the show notes, they're referring to it as a tic-tac because it looks like a tic-tac. Uh, mm-hmm. And it moves very erratically, very fast, and nobody knows what it is, where it came from, uh, because from what they say, the United States military does not have the capacity to build such a flying device. And right. it, is it a drone? Nobody knows. Is it from another country? They say on 60 Minutes, they say highly unlikely. So it is technically a UAP, an unidentified unidentified aerial phenomena. But this shape where, yes, back in the 40s and 50s, it was a flying disc. It was a flying saucer. They were round, most of the reports. Not all, but most. And now they are, their flying triangles are in the news. Flying pyramids. Again, under the category of UAP. So I'm just wondering if these circular objects were seen in the skies and Jung was looking at them as images of wholeness. What are these tic-tac shaped, these triangular shaped objects, what do they represent? I don't know, but it's a triangular shaped and tic-tac shaped would seem me to me to be uh, two different things. Yes, yes. And uh, I think the the triangular things make a lot more sense to me than the other because uh, we know that there are uh, we have make our we make delta shaped planes, and uh, there are um, uh, animals in the sea who are uh, basically uh, uh, triangular shaped manta mm-hmm. manta rays and so forth. Um, they seem to be more, they seem to be more biological than Tic Tacs, mm-hmm. but I, who knows? Uh, I think one of the most important people to read about that is, uh, a Frenchman, um, who has devoted his, his life mostly to this, to this study. And basically his argument is that, uh, the place where we find stories like this are in folklore, and uh, so the 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 idea, well, he's done a number of studies of folkloric parallels with the reports of uh, UFOs. Is this Jacques so, Vallée? Yes, that's who it is, Vallée. Yes, and uh, I mean that he makes a lot of sense. This doesn't mean this does not mean that UFOs are only fantasies any more than Jung was trying to say that. Okay, but it, to um, to know how how we grab onto these things, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, if we find out what they are and, and they are material beings, um, maybe the, um, maybe we will find that we 
they do represent some form of uh, of reality that we've been ignoring. Yes, I wanted uh, to point that out that just because Jung looked at it psychologically doesn't mean that he was negating the fact that they do exist materially. So uh, I wanted to point that out and and that Jung did not dismiss these as just archetypes. He was looking at why why well, we were so might say archetypal images as opposed to just archetypes. That would clarify one of the points that you brought up earlier. Um, an archetypal image can is perhaps the uh, the thing that generates a response in us, and then the it's the, what drives the response is the archetype. So let's use that as an example. I had Mike Cleland on the show uh, several months ago, who has done a lot of research, has pretty much devoted his life, his life's work to owls. And when we first started talking, he referred to the owl as an archetype, the owl archetype. And I thought, hmm, I'm not so sure that there is such a thing as an owl archetype. So would you say that the owl was an archetypal image? Um, it might, it might be an archetypal image for, uh, some being, I, uh, you know, like think about the yucca moth again. Um, the, the blooming yucca flower is an archetypal image for the moth. I see. And, and it's the thing that, uh, impels the moth to go ahead and, and perform the vivid, the, uh, very complicated rituals that it needs to do in order to uh, pass his species on to the next generation. Well, as we wrap up here today, uh, as we're running out of time, I was wondering if there's anything else you'd like to cover before I read something from your concluding reflections. You know what? I think I found your uh, reading of my reflections more impressive than anything that I was able to say here spontaneously. So why don't you go ahead and do that? So the last chapter of the book, chapter 21, is titled Concluding Reflections. The preceding 20 chapters have sought to demonstrate that Jung's dream of psychology as an architectonic science linking the various biological specialties and setting the whole on a reliable empirical foundation can now, in the 21st century, finally be realized. An evolutionary perspective now really can undergird a dependable psychology and we can finally appreciate what Jung meant to accomplish with the idea of archetype. The research and the writing of this volume has been guided by the aim of complex psychology, which is what Jung's uh, analytical psychology was originally called, namely to identify and appreciate the patterns nested within patterns that characterize the data of the human sciences and pursues this aim much the way Jung envisaged in his unsuccessful journal project, Weltanschung, by extracting the leading ideas from the sciences, archaeology to zoology, and making them available to non-specialists. This book has pulled a great deal of material from a variety of specialties in imitation of Jung's own propensity to borrow material shamelessly, like the accursed dilettante he confessed himself to be. I think that that uh, pretty much says what I was trying to do in the book, and I don't think I could do a better job of it right now. Well, this is a wonderful book. Um, chapter 21, as I said, Concluding Reflections. Uh, makes a lot of great points. And in two weeks, we will pick up with volume two, Synchronicity and Science. And we will break down, break apart Jung's theory of synchronicity once and for all. I'm mm -hmm. so I'm so tired of being frustrated myself with what is it? What is it not? And I would like you to tell us the backstory of what went into it and um, how you say that Jung proposed his doctrine of synchronicity, not merely a study in psychology, but a cosmology as well. We'll look forward to that. Okay, great. 
please visit the website Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying A-L-E-X-A, play speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to the Taylor and Francis group, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Young. Speaking of Young